Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems, many of them overweight even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn. She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because at the end of the day, that was going to be all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation. Children going to school hungry in this country is flabbergasting. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We're here in Los Angeles for a change with two people who I admire greatly. Mary Sue Milliken, chef and owner of the Border Grill here in Los Angeles and in Las Vegas. Fabulous Um, to be here. And Sam Polk, who's doing some amazing things, both with an organization called Grocery Ships uh, that provides vital services to low-income families around nutrition, education, and cooking skills, and a new concept called Every Table. Sam, glad you're here. And I'm so excited to be here, Billy. Thanks. Now, I, I usually start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, and I'm going to do that uh, in a moment. But I just got off a plane from Washington, D.C., um, my first time out since the inauguration, oh, man. Uh, and happy to land here in Los Angeles. But I'm just kind of, I'm just personally curious. In D.C., everybody is stressed out of their minds. At least everybody I know, and I don't know, know a lot of the new crowd. Uh, what's it feel like out here? How are people reacting? Just politically, and how does that tie to a lot of the things that both of you care about in terms of working with lots of uh, families who are are struggling in this country? Uh, how would you describe yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, there is so much to unpack there. Um, I would say there's sort of two levels that I'm sort of thinking about this and seeing stuff on. Uh, the first is the sort of, you know, coastal elite sort of progressive sort of world that I am a part of. And the the nice thing is that people are really fired up and people want to do yes. something and they want to be a part of something and they want to make change. And um, that it's almost like that's the silver lining of what's going on, that it's really sort of unleashed a real passion for social justice that, you know, I, for one, have yearned to see more of. Um, so I'm excited by that. On the flip side, you know, a lot of the families that we work f- uh, with at Grocery Ships and a lot of the, the families that work for Every Table, um, you know, have relationships with immigrants or are immigrants themselves. And for those folks, there's a tremendous amount of fear. Um, it's palpable, isn't it? I mean, they just, they personally feel vulnerable, at least is what I've picked up. Vulnerable, attacked, um, there's kids that are afraid that their their parents are going to be taken away from them and that their families are going to be ripped apart. And, you know, on one level, you can say, oh, you know, actually it looks, you know, okay. You know, L.A. is standing up. And, you know, one thing you got to be really proud of if you're a Californian is how California is sort of standing up to this. Um, on the other hand, you don't know. And the president of the United States is saying some pretty um, not only offensive but terrifying things if you're if you're a kid who – you know, whose parents came over from Mexico. Um, so it is a scary time. And so we're doing a lot to sort of support those families and, and bring in, you know, lawyers and uh, folks to sort of like talk and sort of give not there, there's only so much you can do, but at least sort of lay out. This is sort of what what the picture looks like. This is what's really happening. Here's what you should know. Uh, but it's a tough time. And Mary Sue, I imagine in your restaurant uh, empire, 
you employ people and know people quite well who feel some sense of risk as well. Yeah, I, I find myself reassuring our staff in the in the in both front of the house and back of the house all the time. And I think, you know, there's I feel terrified a lot of the time myself. Um, you know, we're, we just opened a restaurant out at the Huntington, uh, the museum, which is really fun. And we trained all the people and um, pro- about half of them had to be let go because the, the parent company is very, very strict about um, the way, the people they will and won't hire or let us hire. And so, you know, all of a sudden it's just a complete switch and all these people we invested so much in and, and became sort of family with over the course of the opening. You couldn't keep them employed? We couldn't. Well, that must have been devastating. It was horrible. So let's talk about the work that... Um, both of you are doing in in that regard. And Sam, uh, there's some I don't even know where to start. There's so many things we can talk about. Your own personal story of transformation is one that I know you've told many times. You've wrote an amazing book about it called For the Love of Money. You were a Wall Street hedge fund trader, I believe, who made this um, transition. Tell us a little bit about that because it's too powerful a story not to talk about. But then mostly I want to get to both what you and Mary Sue are doing in the community here. Yeah, I mean, the cliff notes is, you know, I was a senior trader for one of the largest hedge funds in the world. And, it, you know, it's a it's an eight-year story, but really the, the most important part happened during the crash when the whole world was burning. We were actually making money during that time. So it wasn't that we were losing money, but my whole industry was getting destroyed. And it was almost as if I sort of woke up for the first time and saw that, you know, my goals and the whole goal of all the people around me was this success, which was defined as what can I get for myself? What is the most that I can accumulate for myself? And the funny thing is that we were all sort of of the sort of most privileged group, just trying to get even more for ourselves. And it was as if I looked sort of down and in an instant sort of saw how connected the wider world was and how much finance was a part of it, but just how much all of us were a part of it and how many people were struggling and were going to get crushed by this damage that I was a part of. And I just sort of didn't like where I was standing in the world. And I don't know if you can answer this question, but why did that happen to you and not to anybody else? Well, I mean, that is the I mean, eight years. story. There's kind of story. only one Sam Polk. So um, thank you. But, <laughs> you know, um, I, I think the truth of it is, you know, eight years before, when I had started on Wall Street, I had actually, I had this crazy story where I got, you know, I'd had a series of sort of catastrophes during college that culminated, you know, I'd been kicked off the wrestling team and suspended from school and was battling a drug addiction. Um, and then I got dumped by this girl. And for whatever reason, getting dumped was the thing that sort of changed things for me. And what that looked like is I, I sort of cleaned up my act, stopped drinking, stopped, stopped, you know, doing any drugs, but also started seeing this spiritual counselor. Um, so I was sort of living this sort of like double life where during the day I was, you know, trading bonds and trading derivatives and, you know, figuring out, you know, the markets. And then at night I was talking to this, you know, counselor and reading spiritual books. And I just think that over time I was sort of opening myself up to a view of the world that wasn't sort of the narrow sort of success story that had been presented to me as the sort of American ideal of success. But you know, it was a wider story, a more human story. And I think what I was really doing was just sort of, you know, coming to see different parts of myself that were not being expressed on Wall Street. 
And Mary Sue Milliken, you lead a different kind of double life than the one that Sam was talking about because you're an incredibly successful uh, restaurateur. You've been a competitor on Top Chef. Um, you've um, been just very successful in the food business, but you've also been involved in so many community activities. I mean, it really is two lives squeezed into one with Share Our Strength, with our No Kid Hungry campaign. You and I have been to Ethiopia together. We've twice rode 300 miles on our bikes together to raise money for No Kid Hungry. And I know you're involved with lots of other organizations at all. did from the beginning, did you think that business was going to afford you this opportunity to be engaged in community? How much was it a motivation? How much did it just happen? Well, it's so interesting because um, when I became a chef, when I decided I wanted to cook for a living, it was 1976, and you know I went to chef school straight out of high school, and with a bunch of plumbers and pipe fitters and auto mechanics, and it was not sexy at all. And that, that's who was in chef school with you. Yeah, because yeah. it was a trade school on the okay. south side of Chicago. And, you know, it cost nothing, like $1,500 a year. And I could barely afford the second year, so I got a scholarship. <laughs> but, you know, what was so interesting is I, I worked, I, I've always been a very hard worker and grew up in the Midwest. And, you know, um, the first time I'll never forget when um, we were invited to do a charity event, it was Taste of the Nation with Share Our Strength in 1987, Which I is think. the food and wine benefit that we do all over the country. Right. And I, it was such a great moment for me because I, I had no money to give back. And I grew up without really, you know, having money. My family didn't give back. We weren't like, you know, we weren't well off enough to have, you know, a budget for donating to other people. But it, this was such a, a high for me to figure out a way to use my my skills and create some kind, a little bit of money that could be used for the community. It was it made me so excited. It was the gateway. <laughs> you're making me. You're getting me excited. So we were the catalyst. We were the gateway for. I, th- I really for this think so. Yeah. Lifetime career of activism. And and it's been really. It it makes me. It's the part of my life that makes me more happy than anything. I work on, you know, issues from sustainable seafood and really, you know, to lobbying Congress for. Um, meats grown without antibiotics and hormones, and I've been working with the State Department to go um, overseas to Pakistan and to Sicily to work with migrants or work with women who um, want aspire to have a job in the food industry and need a little entrepreneurial workshop or a little, you know, boost. And um, Really, I have to sort of put a, a limit on my time. I, I say to myself every week, I'm not going to spend more than 35% of my time on nonprofit work. <laughs> <laughs> so you've known Billy for 30 years? Yeah, isn't Shoot. that wild? It's what, were you, thir- were you, what was he like 30 years ago? Just like he is now. <laughs> I was just out I of, think, what was I? Just out of high school, I hope. Yeah. I think I, I think <laughs> I've gotten him to eat a few more vegetables <laughs> since then. Yes, Mary has been my culinary mentor and guide. I was not a very good eater. Still not a great one. So, <laughs> but you're getting better all the time. Yeah, but we do go way we go way back. Yeah. So, yeah. Sam, you ended up in the same business in a way, a different version of the same business that Mary Sue is in, going from Wall Street to actually feeding people in a different fashion. Tell us what led to the insight that is at the core of grocery ships and the service you're trying to provide for families who are looking for healthy food that's affordable. So for me, it was like, you know, I knew that just being in America, being in a food culture, even if you've got a Whole Foods in your neighborhood, is tough. And 
understanding that folks, you know, didn't have grocery stores or healthy food options or didn't have transportation to get to grocery stores. It just it started to seem too hard. Um, and it also seemed like a problem that had so many facets that it would just take a lifetime to solve. And so anyways, we started sort of working at that. And Grocery Ships basically helps parents living in food deserts get their, their families healthy um, through a program that, as you said, includes nutrition education and healthy cooking skills and $30 worth of fresh produce per family per week. Um, but I think the thing that I sort of love about it is it's is it's basically uh, structured not like a lecture but as a support group. So... It's usually 10 moms at a time who sit in a circle and a ton of time is devoted to sharing about the sort of emotional issues that are deeply wrapped up in food issues. So things like, you know, stress and depression and addiction and childhood trauma and family belief systems. And so the thing about grocery ships is people sort of think it's a nutrition education program. And then all of a sudden they're in the midst of this like deeply supportive emotional group of moms who are engaged in the same sort of struggle that they are. And it becomes this like incredibly powerful social bonding experience. And Grocery Ships for now is based in Los Angeles. Yeah, um, it's in, yeah, it's in, Grocery Ships is in Los Angeles, um, although we're sort of, you know. In, starting to think about expanding. Yeah, I mean, we get requests a lot, so it's just a question of how to do it, basically. Mary, so you made a reference earlier to the food system being broken, which means lots of different things, I think, to lots of different people. What's, what's it mean to you and for both of you? What do we need to understand about where our food system is today and how we can improve it? Well, you know, basically, uh, we need a just food system. So food justice means to me that, you know, everybody has access to fresh, healthy, delicious food. And um, there's so many barriers to that in in the way this country's food systems are set up. There's, um, you know, all the... um, All the... Subsidies that go towards things like you know corn and and all the things that we know are making all the high fructose corn syrup all the things that we know are are poisoning our bodies and causing you know national health to be a complete you know disaster because we're not a healthy society yet we're not able to get them changed and I and I feel like that is. as you say all the time, Billy, it's just political will. And the, we just have to make a lot more noise. And this has to become, it, it's, food ties us all together in every single way. And when I travel, you know, internationally, it's the same. Even if I'm not speaking the same language, we're always able to communicate through food. And um, the one thing, we have enough food on the planet, and we have more more than enough food in this country for everyone to have access to fresh, healthy delicious food that's safe and uh, we're not doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, this stuff is the sort of top of mind for me. And it's basically this idea of like grocery stores is the thing that gets me where, you know, every time somebody says, oh, there's a food desert, there's basically two responses. Everybody is like, first, they're like, let's get a, you know, a truck, bring produce in. And you're like, okay, you're not the first person to think of that. And then the second thing is like, can you bring, a, why don't you bring a grocery store in? Well, the problem with the grocery store is that it's very capital intensive. It costs millions to build. Um, very low margin business that when you run it in a sort of underserved area, those margins are a lot thinner and maybe even negative. The reason that I get fired up about that is that we got every table 
so far has been turned down for accepting SNAP benefits. Now, SNAP benefits are food stamps. And they basically, there's all these like weird rules about whether it's a restaurant or whether it's a grocery store. And, and you know, you could sort of understand why SNAP would be against restaurants because you're sort of paid for like a luxury product is what it sort of was thought in the, in, in the past. But the thing that I find so crazy is like, if you think about like how cereal is made, right? Cereal is like made in a factory put in a box, and then sold through a grocery store. Well, we're doing the same thing, except instead of a factory, we're making this fresh food every day in a central kitchen. We're then selling it from a network of stores that are, you know, you could think of them like a grocery store, and we're selling this fresh food for four bucks. But because because it's only fresh food, basically, and because it's like so easy and convenient for people to take, then we can't accept SNAP. And I just, I don't get it. Well, let's go back and talk about what every table is. Yeah. Because I think you've identified an opportunity for Mary Sue and me and our colleagues to share our strength and our advocacy work to fix something that uh, could have bipartisan support for fixing. It's just what you've described is just so logical. But tell us what every table okay, is. Okay, so every table is a, is a social enterprise that's making healthy food affordable for everyone. And how it works is we have a central kitchen that's producing, you know, fresh, healthy meals. And these are meals that are created by, you know, the former head chef of Le Cirque. Um, so one of the best chefs in the country in partnership with so many of the moms that we were working with in grocery ships. So you have meals that are both healthy, but also like widely appealing to a huge swath of the population. So things like Jamaican jerk chicken with coconut beans and rice and plantains and a Puebla chicken tinga with chayote peppers, which is this like amazing Mexican dish that just also happens to be incredibly healthy. And we open, we basically, the the idea is that when you have a central kitchen making these meals fresh daily, then instead of opening a big restaurant where like, you know, a Chipotle, for example, will have like 2,500 square feet of space and 10 to 15 employees in a fully built out kitchen, all of which makes it difficult for them to sell a $4 burrito. But for us, we can open small stores that are like 700 square feet, have refrigerated display cases because the food is packaged every day at the kitchen, and then two employees instead of 10. And so that leads to this incredibly lean cost structure, but it also leads to this great customer experience where the food is fresh, but you can get in and out in 20 seconds. You can buy one meal for lunch, or you can buy 10, which a lot of people do for the whole week. Um, and then I think the thing that has sort of gotten us the most sort of national attention is that we base the prices according to the neighborhoods that we're in. So in South LA, where our first store is, uh, per capita income is $13,000 a year and food there is sold for $4. In other locations, more affluent neighborhoods like uh, Santa Monica and downtown, the same exact food from the same exact sort of look and feel storefront is sold for $8, which by the way is still an incredible bargain. So you go to you go to Santa Monica and you say, "Hey, you guys can get this Le Cirque level food for 8 bucks. That's you can get in and out faster than Chipotle. You can buy 10 meals at a time if you want, and you know that your purchase is helping bring this same store into all the communities in our city, Watts, Compton, Boyle Heights, that Inglewood that don't have access right now." And and the cool thing about this model is that each store is meant to be individually profitable. So it's not like subsidizing. It's not like a buy one, give one. It's like each store is meant to be profitable, but just differently profitable so that we can be affordable for everyone. So as we, um, time is flying here, but as we begin to wrap up, um, I'd love to hear what's next for 
both of you. I know you've got more to do in terms of what you're already doing, but I also know that as folks who have been, you know, a track record of constant accomplishment and building and growing, um, I'd love to hear what's next. And uh, separate from that, I also just want to get your sense of like, because just to connect to where we started the conversation, do we all need to do what we're doing and be more political or is what we're doing already political in its own way, which is kind of, I think, a point maybe that you were making, Sam. But anyhow, talk about well, what's, me, what's coming next. Let me answer it this way. So, you know, we've got one Every Table store open right now, but three more are coming online in February and March. In and Los then, Angeles. Yeah. Yep. And, and and I'm not sort of allowed to publicly say, but there's going to be a lot more stores by the end of this year. And the thing that is exciting to me about that is like, imagine when we have, you know, 15 to 20 stores across Los Angeles. That's going to mean it's almost like a ch- like a channel for for people's um, motivation towards a movement. And what I mean is, like, I'm not saying this so that it's good for my business. I think it will be really good for our business. But I do think that every table can turn into a movement where it's people are going out of their way to go to an every table store, and because there's 15, there's one nearby, mm-hmm. and it's it, they're 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 shopping there because the food is incredible, but also because they want to be a part of something that is about food justice and health equality, and you know, collectively solving a problem that nobody. Once. I mean, healthy food is a human right and it shouldn't be a luxury product. And everybody I've ever met basically believes that. And this is a way to solve that. And why I sort of use that to answer your question, Billy, is that, you know, there, there's there's a couple ways of being political. You know, one is to join advocacy programs. One is to donate to the ACLU, which, by the way, I fully think that people should do that immediately. Um, and there's creating... A, a different way of thinking about things and a way of doing things. And I do think that every table is going to rise into people's consciousness as, you know what, these guys weren't phased by Donald Trump or what was going on. They just created a virtuous system that works for everybody and solved a common problem. And you know what, we're not alone. There's a lot of people in the world working on stuff like this. And together, you know, we can handle these problems whether or not Donald Trump is president. Mary Sue, what's next for you? You know, I was... I was thinking, um, I am one of those people who, I, I, we don't have any huge new things on the horizon. I, I really love uh, what I do so much. And I'm, I'm, I'm on the board of advisors of every table. And I, I'm on the board of the James Beard Foundation. And I, my work with Shara Strength is so important. I think um, in this kind of time, I'm even more energized and excited about that work that I do, which is, um, and that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. I'm, I'm really involved in so many different ways in the restaurant community and the food community and in the food system. And, um, I just, I'm not a, I'm not the one who's going to be at the forefront, um, you know, making a brand new declaration, but I definitely am supporting a lot of different, uh, initiatives that I think are so, um, important. And I, 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 I want to increase that time that I spend on nonprofit work to 50%. Good. Because we I want think you to. there's a lot that we can do. Well, Mary Sue Milliken, Border Grill and Chef Extraordinaire, Share Strength Board member, community activist from LA to Ethiopia. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, and Sam Polk, Grocery Ships, Every Table, a very important book called For the Love of Money, which I hope listeners will 
read. Um, I didn't thought it was fabulous. Uh, thanks for being with us. Well, Billy, and before we go, let me just say that it is an honor being with, you know, a lion in the fight against hunger. Um, so thanks for all your work. Oh, that's what people say when you're old, right? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be, I want to be a lion cub. Um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. If you've liked this conversation, go to iTunes, listen to others. It will be hard to find a conversation as good as this one, but go to iTunes, subscribe, review, uh, rate our, our podcast episodes. Um, again, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks. The Share Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making No Kid Hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.